Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this very special episode, we're going to be celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. We'll start off with Family Tree Magazine editor, Diane Haddad, who's going to bring us some of her favorite items from the news from the blogosphere from the last 10 years. I've conducted a lot of interviews over the last 10 years, and in this episode, we'll take a look back at two of my favorites. One's all about one of my favorite websites, and one is on a topic that is universally important to all genealogists. Now, in hitting this 10-year milestone, it's about time we mix things up a bit, don't you think? And I'm going to introduce you to one of our brand new segments here on the podcast, the Social Media Minute with Rachel Fountain. She's the social media manager at Family Tree Magazine. And then we're going to wrap things up with instructor Lisa Alzo in our Family Tree University Crash Course segment. Lisa's going to share some tips to help us organize our genealogy research. And hey, it's always a good time to get organized. There is a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the news from the blogosphere with Diane Haddad. It's time to check in on the news from the blogosphere, and we're going to do that with the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Gosh, I, I was saying in the intro, it's been 10 years for the podcast. Can you believe that? That's crazy. I know. And a lot has changed over the years, particularly, of course, in the way that we record. And technology has a lot to do with that, doesn't it? Do you remember the days yeah. in the beginning? I, I do remember. We started out, we had to go around the entire office and find the quietest room, <laughs> like <laughs> the least environmental sound. And then we used a handheld recorder and had to transfer the file and then yes. Dropbox it over. And now there's Skype. I remember first recording I ever did for the podcast with was with Allison. And I remember she had to go get in her car because that uh-huh. was the one quiet <laughs> place and then send me the file. But we've come a long way. And of course, over that last 10 years, you've brought us so many terrific stories and news items in the world of genealogy. I'd love to talk about some of your favorites. What are some of the favorite blog posts and news stories that you've shared on the podcast over the years? Well, I think my personal favorites are the posts where I get to talk about my family history because everyone loves talking about their their family history research, right? Um, And use it as an example that can help somebody, um, hopefully help people um, figure out some of their own family history puzzles. So I did pick out a few that I enjoyed writing. There's one um, right here that I'm looking at, genealogy, problem solving, six strategies that helped me. And so that's just six kind of overall tips that I've used um, that have helped me overcome specific issues in my family history research. And those kinds of articles are always so great because you're sharing things that everybody else is suffering with too and showing some of the ways that you overcame those situations, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah. So for example, the court could not find the record of this um, trial that my great-grandfather, he was being tried for bootlegging in a dry county they didn't have the records. So I was able to kind of work around that by using newspapers. This case was reported in the press, not in you know great detail, but enough that I got an idea of what was going on. Interesting. All mm-hmm. right. So looking for alternate sources when you have yes. missing information. Yes. 
That was a great post. So that one was genealogy problem solving, six strategies that helped me. And I'm going to have links to all the ones that she shares with us today. What, what's another one of your favorite? Um, so yet another juicy family story. <laughs> Those are the most fun to read. I was surprised to find out that my third great grandparents had gotten divorced. And it was this um, contentious divorce with a lot of like struggles and fighting over custody and what's going to happen with the house. And so I requested the file from the Kentucky State Archives because the local court had sent all of the old files there. And the person, someone emailed me back and said, it's like 130 pages. Would you like the whole thing? Or And I was like, yes, yes, I want the whole (laughs) thing. So it's really detailed. And because they had testimony from the kids and all kinds of things that you probably wouldn't want to be in records today that I guess, you know, was more acceptable back then. But I'm, you know, certainly happy to be able to read about this stuff. And this one's amazing because this is back in 1879. And Mm -hmm. we just don't think of divorce being very common back then. No, it wasn't. And it was just a casual newspaper mention about things that happened in court yesterday. And oh, by the way, Mary Frost filed for divorce. So that clued me in that I needed to go look for this record. What a wonderful find. And that's just a small little mention in the newspaper opens up to 103 pages in a court record. Amazing. Yes. And then there was another post that I that I thought maybe was helpful. Hopefully it is why your ancestry.com and other online genealogy searches don't work. And that has a chart with a list of the different kinds of problems that can trip up your searches. So maybe there's a transcription error or the actual record itself was um, the name was recorded wrong on the actual record or your search terms maybe don't match what is in the record because you received wrong information from your family. Um, maybe the record's not online or it was never never created in the first place or it's just a digitized version that's not indexed and searchable. So it goes through these things and then has suggestions for what you can do to overcome each individual problem. Well, this is a great post to bookmark. I love this chart. You know, so when you say, oh, I've got incorrect search terms, you you have items in here we can jump right back in and, and make adjustments. So perfect. Yeah. Wow, I bet writing the posts probably moves your genealogy forward and moving your genealogy forward helps write more posts. Yes, <laughs> it's all a beautiful exactly. circle. <laughs> well, we love it. It's the Genealogy Insider blog. And of course, it's all part of FamilyTreeMagazine.com. And Diana, I'm looking forward to many more strategies and news stories coming up in the coming years here at the podcast. Thanks so much for everything you do. You're welcome. In September 2016, we celebrated our 100th episode of this podcast. And in this episode, we're celebrating another big milestone. 10 years of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. Now, putting together a podcast like this is really a joy because we're tackling the questions and the topics that matter most to anyone who's doing genealogy. And that includes me. 
Even though I travel the world teaching on genealogical subjects, no one can cover them all. And genealogy is a hobby that can take you in so many different directions. And each archive and website, each expert, each research strategy has something very unique to offer. So when Diane asked me to share some of my favorite interviews from the last 10 years, I was really excited and a bit overwhelmed. How do you pick from among all the fascinating experts that I've talked to over the last 10 years? So I'm going to go into this top tip segment saying right up front that I don't have one favorite, but I can say that I do have many favorites. And I have selected two of those that I would love to share with you right now. The first one comes from episode 83, published back in April of 2015. Now, our topic for that episode was source citation. And in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Shannon Combs Bennett, an instructor of the Family Tree University Source Citations for Regular People course, made an eloquent case for citing your sources. Source citations can strike fear at times into the hearts of genealogists. You know, they know that they need to be citing their sources, and yet the thought of creating one from scratch can be a bit intimidating. Well, I've invited Shannon Combs Bennett. She's the instructor of the Source Citations for Real People course at Family Tree University to the show to help calm the anxiety and give us some tips for some great source citation. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming back. You know, we had you on last month, and this is a whole new topic. But in this episode, we've been talking about source citation. And about I'd love to have you kind of start us off by giving us first your thoughts on the importance of citing our sources. Well, citing your sources is, to me, one of the crucial parts of being a good researcher and a good genealogist. I have to admit, for a very, very long time, creating or even the thought of creating a source citation seemed daunting and it was like that impossible wall you have to scale and where do you start but the key is to start and to keep going because it's kind of like a breadcrumb trail back to your source you want to be able to lead other people back to the record that you found with the genealogical information on it. So by creating a good source citation, you can think of it as this trail that's going to lead you because someday you might forget where you got that source. I know Mm -hmm. I do still, Um, but it can also lead future researchers, relatives, family members, friends, anybody who sees your work in the future back. And then that leads credibility to your research because you have a source, this is where the information was, and it's not that, you know, you just pulled the information out of thin air. People know where you got it. And that is so critical, more today than ever, I think because of our whole online experience. That, yes. Um, it's so much easier to get information out than it used to be. But with that, we all know that we run into stuff that just doesn't look right. And when there's no source, it's you, you kind of take it with a huge grain of salt. So uh, I like that analogy. It's the breadcrumb trail. And it definitely adds um, weight to our our work and our research so that uh, it means something to us now and certainly to others. And we can stand by it, stand behind it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, um, I know that in this class, you cover a lot of really specific things, but um, I'd love to have you give us a couple of specific tips that we can start using right away. Um, and, And maybe talk a little bit about just what are the basic components? What goes into a source citation? 
Okay, that's those are really good things. Um, the basics. Thanks for starting there, uh, <laughs> because a lot of people think that you know when they see a source citation or they're reading a genealogical periodical, it's all of this gobbledygook down the footnotes. And oh my God, what does that mean? Right. And um, Elizabeth Schoen Mills states over and over again, especially in her books, if you you know have evidence explained on your shelf, that source citations are more of an art than a science. And the more I do it, and the more I teach people about it the more I agree with her. Because it's really all about learning those basic building blocks. And then from there, and that foundation, you can add to it and create custom citations. So the basics that you need. It's kind of like going back to school. I know I learned in elementary school about the five W's and how, you know, who, what, where, when, how, and why. And they're similar in genealogical research. So you need to have a who, you need to have a what. So who's usually like who created the information, the author, the editor, the transcriber, uh, that type of thing. You know, what is normally the title of the source? Uh, when it could be like the record? When was it created? When was it published? Where in the record where the information was located? So your volume, your page, your, you know, this book, uh, that website, uh, where is, this is a really important one. Where is the source physically located? Is it, what's the URL? Is it at an archive or a library? And then the how and the why are added descriptors at the end. Most of the time, it's especially when you're talking about some sort of ephemera to show a provenance for the item or where did you get it from? What is the history of that item? So, you know, if I have a written letter, I'm going to talk about how I received this letter um, from this person on this date and it was from them or if a picture or something like that. And once you have those basic blocks to build on, the rest of it is just, you know, those breadcrumb trails again. So that, that's why I like know your basics, know those little blocks. And then the second one, and what I think is also one of the most important things, and hopefully this will let anybody who's nervous about uh, creating a source citation kind of get rid of that nerves, is it's important to be consistent. So if you start out with a specific style, keep it consistent through all your notes, your research, your writing. Now, typically for genealogy, we go by what's called the Chicago Manual uh, Humanities style. And this is a specific style that uh, is used in humanities fields. And genealogy would be a humanities type of field, you know, historian, those types of things. But even if you don't want to jump right into that style, let's say you've done something for years and years and years, just stay consistent and make sure that it has as much information as you can put into that citation. Once again, it's those breadcrumb trails back. And even if it's not, quote unquote, the academic way to do a source citation, people will know when they're reading your stuff and your, your stuff, you know, your, <laughs> your website or your book or your, you know, your notes that this is the way you did things. And it's not like they have to shift gears every other page because you're trying out a different style or something. Exactly. Makes it much uh, more user-friendly, easy to kind of scan through and pick out the pieces that you need at any given time. Exactly. Well, you know, one of the records that we so commonly use, and particularly for anybody who's listening who's fairly new to genealogy, they're going to be digging first and foremost probably into census records. Give us an example of a source citation for a census record. What would that sound like? 
Okay, so I was working on one earlier today, and it just happened to be on my computer right now. So why don't we go through this? I have a census in front of me uh, from the 1900s. And so the building blocks for this census would be the WHO. It would be the U.S. Census. The when part would be the year taken, and so that's 1900. The what, this would be the description of the census. So this is where you would put the county, the state, that it was a population schedule, uh, where, you know, the actual district, the township, what page, the dwelling, the family number, and then most importantly, what family you're looking at on that page. That's all the what. It's the description of the Mm -hmm. census. And the next would be the where is. So because I got this off of Ancestry.com, this is where I would talk about, I would put the information for Ancestry.com. And then, of course, the date I accessed it originally. And then where in, this would be the original repository. So Ancestry is citing for this the Family History Library microfilm. Um, if you had the actual uh, information from the National Archives where this was taken from, you could also put that there. So for source citations, I kind of go into this in the class a little bit, but there's three different types. So let's do what you would see at like if you're at the bottom of a page where you're saying that this person was born on this month and this year, and you got the month and the year from the 1900 census. So that's called a first reference note. So this 1900 U.S. Census that I'm particularly looking at right now, it would read 1900 U.S. Census, New York County, New York, population schedule, borough of the Bronx, page 11A written, dwelling 170, family 198, George Bennett family. Now this is when I get into the ancestry part. Digital image, ancestry.com. And then parentheses, I have the website and the date I accessed it. And then at the end, I have citing FHL microfilm and the number. So it's a lot of words, but it doesn't look that big on the page, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so much more effective and so much better than just copying and pasting that URL because that could change. You know, images and and documents and pages are moving all the time. So we can't possibly rely on that. It really takes the whole piece. And, you know, something else that that you have in there, the day that you accessed it, and uh, I think particularly folks who are new to genealogy don't realize that some of these uh, companies like Ancestry have gone back and even rescanned certain documents that didn't come out as well the first time. Now they have more resources. They can go back and redo them. So if you got your copy in 2000, you might actually be looking at a different scan of the same census record uh, that might have been scanned in 2008. And even that could explain, oh, that's why, you know, maybe that turned out to be inaccurate or something because of the way it looked. So all of that is so critical to really understanding uh, where that information came from and, and the validity of it. Right. And especially with um, anything on the internet, that date access is important because you can go back to almost any of those websites and quickly change information, reorder things, put them on different pages. And knowing 
when you accessed it sometimes can help people say, oh, well, they've gone through so many versions <laughs> since then. So yeah, it's very, very important. And it's not just an ancestry document. It actually came from microfilm. It's leading it even further back into its own, the genealogy of that item, if you will. Um, right. So that we really know where it comes from. Wow. So great. You know, we've been really driving this home, how important this is. And, and I appreciate you giving us that the concrete examples of what this looks like, how it sounds it doesn't sound so bad. I think we can all do this. So um, just such a critical thing. If you want to learn more about how to accurately and efficiently and consistently cite your sources, this class is terrific. It's the Source Citations for Real People. It's at Family Tree University. I'll have a link in the show notes for you. And Shannon Combs-Bennett would be your instructor, and she makes it so easy. Thank you so much, Shannon, for joining us on the show. Thanks, Lisa. It was great being here today. Shannon is always terrific, and I love the points that she made about citing your sources and the importance of them. It can look like gobbledygook, as she said, but they really do just make a difference, not only for other people who look at your research, but for you as the researcher to be able to see the breadcrumb trail that you have left along the path. Now, the other favorite interview that I want to share with you in this episode comes from March of 2014. In the 101 Best Websites segment, I got to cover one of my favorite websites, the Digital Public Library of America. And I interviewed Dan Cohen, Executive Director of the Digital Public Library of America, which is also known as the DPLA. Dan took us on a tour of this terrific website. Providing research solutions can be a big job, and the Digital Public Library of America, which is one of our 101 best websites for tracing your family history, is striving to do just that. According to the National Archives press release that came out about it, the DPLA is a large-scale collaborative project across government, research institutions, museums, libraries, and archives to build a digital library platform to make America's cultural and scientific history free and publicly available anytime, anywhere, online through a single access point. Uh, it sounds like a big job, and here to tell us more about it is Dan Cohen, DPLA Executive Director. Hi, Dan. Hi there, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for joining us. I've been kind of following the DPLA, and certainly we wanted to get it onto our list because you're doing some exciting things over there. Um, I just read a mouthful from the National Archives about what you guys are trying to do over there. But tell us in your own words, what's happening at the DPLA? Yeah, well, I think the, the easiest way to think about the Digital Public Library of America is that uh, we are really one-stop shopping. We uh, bring together the riches of America's libraries, archives, museums, cultural heritage sites. And I think um, if you look across the country, we are bringing together over a thousand institutions that have donated material to the DPLA. And we make it really easily searchable. Um, you can discover quite a, a lot on our site. We have all kinds of items on our site, ranging from uh, images, photographs, artwork, to documents, uh, books. We have over a million books. Um, and really unique uh, cultural heritage content um, from archives across the nation. So I think for your audience, it's a terrific place to begin any kind of research, uh, considering that we bring together so much from so many places. Oh, it sounds like it. And I noticed on the website that it, 
you guys talk about the fact that you really have different customers, if you will, the website, you've got end users, and then the libraries and the museums and the archives and even developers. We're kind of talking to the end users here. Um, when a, a genealogist comes to the DPLA, where do they start? Right. Well, we have a few different entry points into our very large collection, which is now uh, approaching 6 million items. And uh, so obviously that's a a huge amount of information. We want to make it easy for end users like genealogists to make their way through such a large collection. So we do have a general search box. It works a lot like Google. You can type in any keyword and it will search again across all of these collections and provide you with thumbnail images of the items and uh, give you one-click access to those items. Again, everything on our site is open access, so uh, there are no gates at all. You'll find that uh, anyone who uses our site can read anything from anywhere uh, across the nation, which is really, I think, again, another uh, strong selling point. So we do have that Google-type search box, but we also have, I think, some really critical tools and, and really unique tools on the site that I think your users will find helpful. The one that is really popular that I think would be great for genealogists is that we have a map-based interface. So as many items as we can, as they come into the collection, we do what's called geocoding, which is we try to provide a latitude and longitude for the items where they originated. So let's say it's one of the over uh, 2,000 historical Bibles we have. Um, we try to actually locate where those are from and then pinpoint them on a map. And if you look at our map interface, you can zoom in to a specific town on the map and you'll find all the items that we have from that town regardless of where they originated from. So we have items, for instance, from rural Minnesota, a small town that I often bring up in my talks um, in rural Minnesota called Morris, Minnesota. And we have a few dozen items from that town, and they come from all these different collections from the National Archives, from the Smithsonian in Washington, but also from small local historical societies in Minnesota itself. So all of that is brought together in one place, and you can just zoom right into the map and find it. Um, So map-based interface, I think uh, your users and uh, um, readers will find really interesting. We also have a timeline that you can zoom back across time and go to a particular year and find all the material from that year. Um, So different ways in uh, to the collection. And I think depending on the user, different people like different uh, discovery methods, and we try to provide a variety of them uh, for our audience. Okay, now you sounded so calm, but I was pulling up the map while you were talking, and I was getting totally excited because this is the coolest thing ever. It's really, okay, it really is neat, I have to say. It is. If you're listening, you got to do this. You have to go to dp.la and then it's slash map, or you can just click map on the homepage. Now I'm looking at Texas, 287,000 items to work That's with. Right. <laughs> and and it looks deceiving because at first it looks like, oh, there's one dot per state. But then you click on each one. And as you said, you can get closer to the towns of interest and more and more dots keep popping up. This is a fabulous way to help us visualize your collection. That's right. And um, it's not something you can really find in other places. If you go to Google, I think you'll your audience will understand that they'll get, um, you know, a set of 10 links and some text and maybe there'll be a little breakout box on the right side. But um, this map-based interface is really, you just can't find something like it anywhere else. So I think it's a great place uh, to start and to zoom in. I mean, almost literally down to the block level to find materials of interest. 
Exactly. And as you click the dots, then those, like as you said, the, the items are going to pop up, the, the little thumbnails and things that give us a sense of what we're going to find there. That's right. There's, we actually have 10 levels of Zoom. So you'll see a general map with these, as you noted, these big bubbles that have hundreds of thousands of items. But then as you zoom in further and further and further, those bubbles split apart into little um, areas, towns, again, block by block. Now, I have to ask, I don't see a search box on the map itself. So do I need to kind of know where this town is located and and find it myself by zooming in? Or can I somehow put the name of the town in? You can, in fact, search. put the name of the town into our general search box. And then once you get a, a, a search results page, you can click on that little uh, push pin icon. And that will convert the search that you've done just in the general search area into a map-based interface. And usually that does, in fact, bring up, um, obviously, there are towns that are named the same thing across states. Right. But uh, if it's a very unique uh, town name, you'll see that there'll be a, a red dot with the number of items we have from that specific town. You should be able to zoom right in. And I just put in Winthrop, which is a little town in Minnesota, but I put MN for Minnesota. And sure enough, it just focused on that. Okay, I have to stop doing this because I'm supposed to be interviewing you. It is a, wow. it's a great uh, just browsing time sink, too, I have to say. And I, I am a, uh, by training a historian. So um, I'm as excited about this as I think a lot of our audience members will be. Wonderful. Well, Okay, anything else, any other tips or tricks that we should keep in mind as we're working on the site? Sure. Well, one thing, again, that I'll, I'll come back to from when I uh, just started the podcast is that we have lots of different kinds of items. So we have tens of thousands of obituaries from uh, places like Georgia and Utah. We have Bible records that I mentioned. We have genealogy periodicals. So you mentioned Texas, um, which has several hundred thousand items from Texas, but we have 400 genealogy periodicals from Texas that you can search completely openly, uh, make your way through. We have hundreds of thousands of newspaper records, um, clippings, indices, and um, I think one really neat thing that a lot of people don't find on our site, but I think your audience would find really interesting is we have city directories, over 2,000 of them from across the United States, directories of who lived in these various cities as well. We have oral history, so it's not just uh, um, textual material. We actually have audio of nearly a thousand oral histories and so many other local histories. So, um, you know, over the past couple hundred years, there have been locally produced histories of small towns, counties, and cities that have been published. And so we actually have those books in our collection. And you can find those again, if you search under a specific town name. So it's really a a wide variety. As I like to say, um, we have the full range of human expression. And I think if you're doing genealogy, um, this variety of resources is really, really exciting. And that's interesting. I mean, the city directory is obviously is a wonderful resource for us. How do you pick your collection? And how do you gain access to them? That's a great question. So We have what are called hubs, which are um, donating, uh, large-scale donating institutions across the country. And uh, we have two kinds of hubs. Uh, One are content hubs, which are big, big places like the Smithsonian and the National Archives and some very large universities um, and other institutions of that scale that donate directly to us with uh, hundreds of thousands of items. What's, I think, interesting for um, our audience today is we have what are called service hubs, which are state and regional-based hubs that act as like mini DPLAs in their area. So, for instance, in Minnesota, um, we have a, a hub called the Minnesota Digital Library, and they go around the state for us and collect 
local materials to be donated into our larger collection. And they help us in that they have local connections, they know how to um, update the, what's called metadata or the descriptive information about all these items with um, important local uh, information. And so um, we rely on these service hubs in states and regions um, to help us out. And so all of our content is coming in through this sort of second layer of, of partners. And um, it's a great network model. It works a lot like the internet in that we're not just this monolithic entity uh, here in Boston, Massachusetts. We're actually distributed across the country. And that's how we really get so much content from over, as I said, a thousand uh, different contributing institutions through these hubs. Absolutely. We've been talking to Dan Cohen of the Digital Public Library of America, the DPLA. You'll find them at dp.la. And Dan, thank you so much. I can see why you made the list. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to be on it. Thanks again. This is Rachel Fountain with your Social Media Minute. This week on Facebook and Twitter, we asked our followers what their favorite genealogical and or historical podcasts were. Here are their answers. Anne told us about Family Ghosts, which is a podcast that investigates mysterious family figures. It's a personalized family mystery podcast. She also recommended Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which is a very popular podcast focused on world events throughout history. John recommended the Genealogy Guys podcast, which is one of our favorites as well. We would recommend that as well as Lisa's podcast, of course, Genealogy Gems. My personal recommendation is a podcast called More Perfect by WNYC. It investigates the history of famous Supreme Court cases and how they shape our world today. This has been your Social Media Minute. I'm Rachel Fountain. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Family Tree Mag. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Family Tree Magazine. To kind of wrap up this 10th anniversary episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, I think the appropriate topic for the Family Tree University Crash Course segment is getting organized because there is nothing more important for your research than getting and staying organized. That's going to serve us well into the future. And of course, we have many more podcast episodes to go. So let's get you organized. And we're going to do that with the instructor of Organize Your Genealogy Research, Lisa Alzo. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me back. Great to have you here. Gosh, I just saw you at the Genealogy Jamboree in Burbank, and that was a great event. And I know that you're going to be teaching again. You're going to be teaching in July this Organize Your Genealogy Research. This is a four-week course, right? That is correct. It's four weeks yes. with discussion and, and, and lessons and assignments. Excellent. So you're going to lay out a methodology, but you're also going to be available to talk to them along the way and kind of answer those nagging questions that we have about trying to to stay and get organized. What are the key areas that you see as the, as the top places to kind of focus your energy when you're trying to get your life organized for genealogy? Well, the first thing that we try to encourage in this course is setting goals initially. So organizing your genealogy is a is a big order. It's a tall order. Right. And so we try to break it down. So 
in the first week, we, we talk about setting SMART goals, which means specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound goals. And so instead of just saying, I want to organize my genealogy, you would take, <laughs> which is, is hard to do, you would take, okay, I'm going to work on one set of records for one surname in my family tree, and I'm going to get those organized. Or I'm going to, you know, take a box of photos and lay them out, organize them by year. So you would set small goals and because that helps you get motivation uh, because if it's overwhelming, you're going to give up. If it's a small goal, then you can motivate yourself to see your progress and keep going. So you're going to break it down into bite-sized chunks that we can handle. And I, I think, you know, when you talk about goals, I totally agree with you because I'm a very goal-oriented person and it helps to know kind of what's the roadmap, where are we going with all this? And even more so, I think as you're deciding on how you're going to get these things organized when you're, let's say you're working on newspapers, how are you going to do newspaper organization? Well, a lot of that is about what are your genealogy goals? What is it that you think you'll be needing, right? How, what's the easiest way to find stuff? The kinds of things in the ways that you need them to support your research, right? So it's kind of a dovetail with your genealogy goals. Exactly right. And the other thing that we like to talk about in this course is you know, we, we give several different options and methods and, you know, the course has has videos that the students can watch, plus written lessons, plus resources and, you know, more places to go for help and, and advice. And so, uh, you know, Family Tree Magazine has tons of great articles and videos that encourage organization. And so we try to give different options because I find that one size doesn't always fit all. So mm -hmm. it all fits in with the individual's goal. Very true. Lisa, I know you work with so many students. What do you really feel like is at the top of the list? What's the big pain point in the organizational spectrum? Because there's so many different kinds of things we're trying to organize. Where do you think most people are just banging their head against the wall? I think people get overwhelmed with the amounts of paper they've collected. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's number one, you know, I have all this stuff, I've either inherited it from family members, or I've started my genius, and I've printed everything out. <laughs> and I've done, you know, I, I gathered all these photographs. And, you know, I wrote away for documents. And now I have all this paper. And so we try to give specific methods for paper organization, but I also see some students trying to make the transition to paperless. So you're kind of in that in-between stage. You have paper, but maybe you want to start doing more digitizing. And then we try to encourage students not to become digital hoarders. Mm, because, you know, that can wear out your hard drive, too. And it, I, I literally had my computer shouting at me the other day, I can't back your computer up unless you do something about all the stuff on there. Do you get into some of that? Do you ever put things off site? Do you archive them somewhere else? I mean, sometimes our computer gets a bit overwhelmed with everything that we have. Exactly. And so we give different tools and methods. So we we talked briefly about using a tool like Evernote. Of course, there's an entire course on Evernote, but 
we we talked briefly about using a, a system like that and then also uh, give different suggestions for offsite backups, cloud storage, and other types of options to help people streamline their digital organization. Now, I know you said that one size does not fit all, and I think that's true. And I think that's one of the reasons this course is so great, because it does allow for different people's, you know, learning styles and comfortable, you know, levels. I'm curious, and I'm sure people listening are curious. So where does Lisa also put all her digitized documents? The stuff she said, these aren't rare, they're not original, so I don't need to keep this paper. I scanned it. Where do you put your stuff? I follow this, you know, three, two, one method where you have three different ways and two, and then there's one off site. So I try to, uh, I use, you know, not only do I have my computer, but I have an external hard drive that I don't leave plugged in, but I back it up on a routine basis. And then I also use cloud storage. Now my, my personal, favorite. I, I use Dropbox. Um, I sometimes use iCloud, but I also use Dropbox. Uh, I have the premium version and that works for me. So uh, I know other folks use other products and we talk, we give, we give a variety of options, but me personally, I find Dropbox saves my life. And you know what? That's what I use too. And I I think some of that is that it's been around a long time. So, so many of the apps that we love to use and the new apps that are coming out, they always support interaction with Dropbox. And, you know, the thing I've been using lately, Lisa, is that selective sync, because my computer is kind of hollering at me that I've got too much going on. And there's stuff in Dropbox, I don't need it every day, right? Me too. So I love that I can go in and click the selective sync and just say, this folder I don't need this on this computer. And if I really need it, I can go to dropbox.com and sign in and see it. Or I can even turn the folder back on later if I want to. But particularly doing a show like this, MP3 files are really large. And I don't need the entire archive available to me on a daily basis. And I'm guessing in genealogy, it's the same way. There's stuff that we've digitized, kind of filed, kind of archived. We don't need it every day at our fingertips. That's correct. And I do the same. I, I love the selective sync. And that's why I find that it works for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as an Apple user, I, I do use iCloud for photos and things that sync with my, my iPhone. But I for my genealogy and my writing projects, you know, the Dropbox just works for me. Yeah. And, and there you've made a great point, too, that sometimes even within our own system, it depends on the kind of hardware we're using as to, you know, maybe photos go with the iCloud and then the other things go with Dropbox. And that's OK, isn't it? It sounds like no matter what people choose, the class is going to give them some rhyme and reason and some really nice strategies that they can stick with and implement. Yes, and and that's what I like about this course is because we talk about paper, we talk about digital files, uh, and we you know we talk about things like you know creating a research log to you know when you're researching as you go and logging everything in so you're not repeating the same searches with the same negative results over and over again to to keep track of where you're searching for information, where you're finally get the citations and, and everything, you know, before you draw your conclusions and, and put this into your genealogy database. So we, we cover a gamut 
of different techniques and different suggestions for organizing not only what you've already collected, but organizing as you go, as you move forward in your research. So if you're listening, does this sound like something that you need? If you do, go to the show notes for this episode. It's familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. And this is the June 2018 episode. And we'll have notes there and a link over to Organize Your Genealogy Research. This is the four-week course with your own Lisa Alzo. And it starts the second week of July of 2018. But if you're listening into the future, head to familytreemagazine.com and do a search on Organize Your Genealogy Research. The latest and greatest version of the class that's running will pop up on your screen and you can join Lisa. Lisa, thanks so much. It sounds like a worthy course. We're so glad you're teaching it. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for this very special June 2018 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, celebrating the 10th anniversary of the podcast from America's number one genealogy magazine. Head on over to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast to get the notes and the web links for everything that we talked about in today's episode. And then stay tuned because next month, you're going to hear more fresh new segments to take us well into the future. Thanks again for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, The Genealogy Gems Podcast, which is also available through our Genealogy Gems app in your favorite app store. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. <laughs>